Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Again, friends in podcast land, and welcome to episode 119 of There's Still Time, the AFTN Soccer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael McCall, and I'm flying solo again for this episode, but don't worry, we have a host of entertaining guests for you as we pick over the bones of the 2015 Women's World Cup and look a little bit ahead to the 2015 Gold Cup. So two podcasts from us in a couple of days, like an ambassador at a reception with Ferrara Rocher, we're spoiling you. If you don't get that reference, just do a quick search on YouTube. But yeah, we thought we'd come back with another podcast pretty quickly because we know not everyone wanted to listen to our American Women's National Team special that we brought out on Tuesday. So quickly moving on from that, we're going to do a little wrap-up show from the Women's World Cup. So just how was the tournament? How well was it received? Certainly got the viewing figures anyway. And it packed the crowds into the venues as well. 52 matches played over 30 days, total attendance of more than 1.35 million. I think that's a, a pretty successful tournament. Lots of records fell in the process as well. America claimed, unfortunately, a historic third Women's World Cup title. And they've got the, the little star on their jersey now to prove it. The average attendance at games was 26,029. Obviously, some of the games that BC plays blew that out of the water and really helped to add to that and make up for the low ones in Moncton and Montreal. Moncton because of the small venue. Montreal because I just don't really think that's a soccer city, really. Vancouver had the biggest attendance of the tournament. Just over 54,000 packing into BC plays for that Canada-England quarterfinal. And seven of the games overall had an attendance of over 50,000. So it was a whole new total attendance record for any FIFA competition apart from the main Men's Senior World Cup. So all in all, I think you can say it was a success. But was it? We're going to look at that, along with whether we should be happy or disappointed at how well Canada did, the future of the Canadian game, and did the right team win the tournament? And we're going to look over all those things with our regular on the show, Harjit Jahal. Well-travelled this tournament... And for me, the the best and most expert women's soccer writer in Canada these days. So let's just get straight to her. Here's Harjit Johal. So we're joined now by Harjit Jahal. You'll all know her as Har Journalist on Twitter. Har, 
tournament's over. You've been racking up the air miles like nothing on earth. You must have so many free flights coming up now. What is your overall perception one day after the final of how the, the whole tournament was? A success? Yeah, I think it was a massive success. We saw so many fans and supporters of women's football pack the whole cities, you know, Vancouver to Moncton to cheer on their favorite teams. We saw a lot of support. We saw a lot of great football out there, a lot of dedication, a lot of media attention for the players and for the tournament. So really, really massively, I would say this was a very successful Women's World Cup. Now, we'll go back to the tournament itself in a little bit. First thing, though, I want to ask you, like building on this, there's all this talk just now about the legacy and what it's going to mean for the women's game in Canada. The way that I'm looking at it, though, is I think it's all good talking about legacy and stuff just now. We had it with the Olympics. And if you look at after the Olympics, folks soon forgot about all these winter sports. Maybe curling got a little bit of a boost and more folk were playing that. But in general, when the event's on, people are talking about it. Do you still think in a year's time the women's game in Canada is going to be right at the top focus? In a year's time, I think there will be a focus, but I don't think it will be as huge as it is now. We've got the, uh, the Rio Summer Olympics in Brazil. I believe that's in August at some point. So if Canada qualifies, you know there will be talk about women's football, the U.S. will probably qualify as well. So there'll definitely be talk, but I don't think it'll be on a huge scale like we've seen at the Women's World Cup right now. I think it's imperative that Canada soccer, U.S. soccer, and the English FA and other countries, that they do not piss away this momentum. You must build on it. Not in a year, not in six months, or maybe six months, but from now till the spring, you must build on it. You must capitalize it on right now because it's in the minds, it's in the focus of the general public. You know, they're aware, they know some of the players probably. It's very good to market it. You've probably got businesses that want to get behind it and show their support. So it's crucial that the federations get behind women's football and show their support because now is the perfect time, not later, right now. Well, Kind of building on that then, at the opening press conference I asked Victor Montagliani about the fact that there wasn't any professional women's clubs in Canada and he had said there'd been interest shown in some markets but nothing had kind of come to light funding wise. At the closing press conference as well he kind of made, he kind of alluded to the fact that they would love a women's team in the NWSL in Vancouver. The players, they've been based here so much it's like a second home to them, I'm sure they would love to play out of Vancouver. A lot of the onus was put on the white caps to kind of pony up that money for it. First thing to ask, do you think that's fair that it, the onus is on the white caps to do that when they've invested so much already in the women's programme and they're bringing forward the, the residency and they've got the USL team? And do you think that in the next year, maybe for next season, that we will see a Canadian NWSL club? There's an onus on the Whitecaps for sure, but I don't think this, it's solely placed on them. You have to have, I guess, money and sponsors and teams, uh, people that are able to back the team. And I think with the Whitecaps, they were penny-pinching and looking to save every last dime, and so they cut the women's team after the 2012 season. I think if you can get businesses and you can see that there is support for 
an NWSL team in Vancouver that they should def definitely have one. I don't know what the NWSL's expansion plans are. I'm sure they, they would look at expanding for next season, and they should. Whether that market would be a good fit here in Vancouver, it remains to be seen. You know, I think Vancouver has to step up and show that they want an NWSL team here. And I think there's a lot of moving parts, and it's, it'll be difficult to get them on the same page. So to answer your question, I'm going to have to go no. I don't think there will be an NWSL team for next spring here in Vancouver. It's a shame, and there really should be. Like you said, a lot of players are based in Vancouver, residencies here. They live here, many of them. So it would be a no-brainer. But, you know, I'm not running things, so I don't make the decision. Well, maybe you should run things because it's like you... you got some really good ideas. The, the problem that I see is I don't think the women's game can make money at this point in time by having a Canadian club. You see how much travel that the, the Whitecaps women's team would have if they joined the NWSL. Lots of interconnecting flights. So there's that aspect. There's a monetary aspect. There's also the aspect of where they would play to pull in the crowds. Now the women's team before when the Whitecaps had one, obviously a much lower level, it was like a travelling roadshow. They played everywhere and they were pulling in crowds of over a thousand. To sustain that, I mean you look at the USL team just now and they're struggling, well maybe not struggling, but they're, they're making between a thousand and fifteen hundred per game. They're playing out a Thunderbird. To put a women's team at Thunderbird and have double headers with the USL team, that might be a good marketing tool. But also, people don't want to travel to Thunderbird. So you might have to look at having it at, say, Percy Perry in, in, in Coquitlam, maybe somewhere out in Surrey. Is the infrastructure there and is the support there, do you think, to make a team actually financially viable? Financially viable? It would be tough, as it always is in, in women's soccer with teams. I think you really have to have big businesses backing women's football in Vancouver and across the country. Yeah, you'll get the fan support, you'll get a couple thousand, or depending on the stadium or the venue, you know, the, the Portland Thorns, they're regularly packing Portland to watch Sinclair and Morgan and all the players down there. So. But then Portland's a very big soccer city. I mean, they support their, their PDL team. I've been down at a PDL game down there where there was 12,000 people, so I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, we're not Portland, but I think we can do better than a couple of thousand fans for the women's team if we were to get one. A stadium in a good location is super important. I'm not sure Thunderbird would be the ideal place. You know, you're obviously going to attract a lot of families, a lot of people with young kids. We well, have Swan Guard as an option. I think Swan Guard would that. be the better option. I don't know who is going to drive out to Thunderbird to watch them on a weekend. I wouldn't want to go there, really. Oh, also a grass pitch at Swan Guard, so that will please the American players. Now, let's, let's just move quickly back to the tournament just for a, a couple of minutes to wrap this up. Canada, as I actually predicted, showing my complete knowledge of the women's game, crashed out at the quarter-final stage to England. Do you think that was as far as they really were expected to go in this tournament? Obviously, Canada had got behind them and there was a little bit of hype built up. Oh, they can go and win this thing, but realistically, I don't think they ever could. No, you're bang on. You and me and a lot of other pundits predicted that they would be out of the quarterfinal round. So they made it. England beat them. They really could have taken England. You know, two to, two to one. That terrible start did them in. So they could have really taken England. But, yeah, that's what we predicted, and that's what happened. I don't know where this team goes from now. We're obviously going to have to see which players retire and who John brings in. I mentioned the Olympics earlier. 
you can only have 18 players on that Olympic roster. So you've got to cut it down to 18 from 23. So there's definitely going to be older veterans out the door, younger players, and even more so players that are not going to be in Brazil. So a lot of tough decisions for the gaffer, and we'll see where he moves with the program. And we're going to get a rough idea of what the squad might be at the Pan Am Games later this month. It's a, basically an under-23 team that Canada's taken, so it's the future of the women's game. Now, talking to John Herdman, I know if this was, say, in England, or if it was the US, and the team did crash out at a quarter-final stage, there would be calls for his head. He's done a lot with this team. He's won a bronze at the Olympics. He's played a World Cup on home soil. Can he take this team any further? Should he bow out now without maybe having the danger of tarnishing his legacy? No, I don't think he's going to bow out. You, you've met John, you've talked to him. He's not seemingly the guy or someone like that who would quit or leave when the going gets tough. I think he really wants to build up Canada soccer in this country, develop it to what it can become, maybe like a US or a Germany where there's a pipeline of players coming through. I don't know that Canada's got that talent, but we'll see. Yeah, I think he's going to stick in for the long run. He's got young kids, they like it here. He moved here from England, so yeah, I think he's in here for the long haul, and uh, we'll see how it turns out. We kind of really have to talk about the winners, America. Now We do? Yeah, it's, it's a very American-heavy podcast, this one, unfortunately. But looking at the Americans, they, they kind of got stronger as the tournament went on. No other team seemed to get stronger every single game. They played Japan in the final, blew them away in the opening moments. Jill Ellis got her, her game plan spot on because the, the Japanese, to me, watching them, they, they were always going to be in danger of letting goals in if a team could take their chances. Switzerland showed it in their first game against Japan. They created a number of chances, but they just couldn't finish them. America did finish them on Sunday, 4-0 up after 16-17 minutes. Looked really good. They looked the best team in the tournament. Maybe Germany were slightly better, but obviously they had a really tough draw and, and, and crashed out to the US. How good is this US team? And how worrying is it for the rest of, of football, women's football, that there's all this young talent now coming through for the States? They're really good. I wouldn't say that it's a worry for the other teams. They just know that they've got to be better. I mean, US won, they're the world champions, and you always want to be the champions going forward. They've got a lot of young talent, so do a lot of other teams. It's just who can better develop the talent and integrate it into the first team. That's usually the teams that have success. So we'll see how the other nations go moving forward. And U.S. is the top dog, so they'll want to knock them off. But worrying, I wouldn't say it's worrying. I think it just makes every other team step up their game so they can be where the U.S. are right now. Let's just have one last question for you then. Like on that subject, you've covered the women's game for years. You're not just one of these flyby people that just kind of jumped on this tournament and I'll probably never cover it again. You've seen women's football grow over these years and you've seen in this tournament, it's the largest ever number of teams in the tournament and a lot of the, the gap between the top nations and, and those maybe say five, six down to maybe even the mid-teens, it's got a lot narrower. How much do you see these nations continuing to develop in years to come? And is Canada kind of standing still when these nations are catching up on us fast? I wouldn't say Canada's standing still. They're just moving 
at a slower pace than maybe some of these other teams. We saw how well Cameroon and Colombia and even the Lionesses of England, how well they played in surprise teams. The gap is definitely narrowing. We're seeing a lot of other teams develop and play well. It just It's great for the women's game to have some of these other countries playing so well. But for that to continue, you need to have federations step up their game. You need to have friendly matches. You need to have training camps. You need to bring in a lot of younger players. You've got to have some places you've got to have better coaching. Mexico and Spain come to mind with their almost dictatorships they've got in those coaching ranks. So you've got to have a number of key things in place for uh, up-and-coming nations to develop. So going forward, hopefully, uh, those federations buy into the women's program and fund it and produce and help the players evolve so we can have more great tournaments like this one. Well, thank you for your time today, Har. Just before we go, let everyone know where they can find you online. I cover women's soccer for Equalizer Soccer. I cover the Vancouver Whitecaps for Red Nation Online. And you can always uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at Har Journalist and uh, send me your interesting comments. Well, always pleasure talking to you, Har. Always fun to read your stuff and those things as well. We'll have you back on the podcast soon talking Whitecaps. But until now, after your busy month, you can go home and rest. Mon the women's football. So thanks to Har for joining us there. Always nice to have her on the show. She's someone that covers the women's game, not just when the World Cup's on, not just when the Olympics is on, but throughout the year, every year. If you're a fan of the women's game, definitely read her stuff and check out her Whitecap stuff as well. So as we said there, Har certainly racked up the air miles, going to Edmonton, Montreal, Vancouver, back to Edmonton. She was travelling all over the place. And someone who racked up even more air miles than her was SI.com senior writer and Fox Sports analyst Grant Wall. Now we had a chance to catch up with Grant at the special American women's national team show that they had at Jackpool Plaza here in Vancouver on Monday. So we thought we'd take the opportunity just to ask Grant how he found the whole competition and what this win means for the American women's national team programme going forward. So here's Grant Wall. So Grant, tournament's finished. How how have you made the whole month? It's been incredible. Um, and just when you get into a World Cup, it sort of builds its own momentum, its own narrative as it goes along. And it takes so many unexpected turns, you know. And to win a World Cup, um, if you're the United States, uh, they didn't play all that well, attacking-wise at least, in the first several games. And so nobody would have predicted that against the toughest two teams they would face, Germany and Japan, they would turn into this attacking force. Um, you know, five goals in a World Cup final, four goals in the first 16 minutes of a World Cup final, a goal from the halfway line in a World Cup final, a hat trick for Carly Lloyd in a World Cup final. I mean, that's just crazy talk. 
Yeah. I, I was speaking to Julie Johnson and I asked her, like the penalty miss against Germany, or the penalty conceded against Germany, at the time seemed like horror for her. But looking back, that kind of seemed to give America the spark and push them forward, I think, to this one. It might have, you know. I mean, crazy things happen in games. Um, and so they, she goes from being in tears on the field, thinking she's cost her team the World Cup, to um, having this real shot in the arm. And I think sometimes we forget how players' confidence ebbs and flows during a tournament, during the course of a game. And that's that can have a, as big an impact on a, on a game as a tactical switch. Now, I, I do think the big tactical switch that Ellis made with Morgan Bryan coming in as a central midfielder and having three central midfielders from the start the last couple games uh, really freed up Carly Lloyd to become a legendary player. Talking to Joe Ellis, as an outsider, I didn't really understand what all the all the hassle and all the kind of abuse that she was getting going into the tournament. What, what was behind that? Was it just that American public demands so much from the women's team? I wouldn't say it was abuse, I think. But there's a lot of criticism, a lot of critical stuff. And, and I think that if she understands that sort of par for the course when you're the U.S. women's national team coach. And it's the only comparison I can make is to the Brazil men's coach, you know. I mean, you're expected to win the World Cup every time. And if you don't, it's a failure. And people are going to bellyache if they think, because they care so much, you know. And that's fans, some media. Um, I think... I can only speak for myself, but like when I cover this team, I cover it the same way I would cover any team in any sport. And when people around the world care so much about sports, um, critical stuff's going to come up. And all credit to Jill Ellis. I mean, she pushed all the right buttons as the tournament went on. I think it was a big risk to, to bench Abby Wambach, the greatest goal scorer in the history of soccer internationally, and start your youngest player basically in her place, uh, not in her exact place, but to make that switch, that took a, a lot of courage, and it paid off. Do you see Jill Ellis staying on for France, the World Cup? I think you got to deal with the Olympics first. You know, her contract, as I understand it, runs to the end of 2016, and certainly she helped her situation in this tournament. Um, I think in many ways she was coaching for a job in this tournament. Um, and obviously by winning it, that's, that's a big moment uh, for her. So I expect her to go through to the Olympics. Curious to see which players she'll have, you know, how many players are going to retire. I think a few will. And so you're looking at probably Jill Ellis getting the chance to integrate even more young players. And we've seen the two youngest players in this tournament, Johnston and Morgan Bryan, were huge. They were fantastic and they were necessary. Uh, so it makes you wonder how many other Julie Johnstons and Morgan Bryans there are out there who might get a shot now in the next year for the Olympics. Canada as the host country, how do you think made Danny putting on this World Cup? I really enjoyed it. I love Canada uh, and really enjoyed going to cities I've been to before like Montreal and Vancouver but also seeing new places to me like Ottawa and Edmonton and Winnipeg and uh, didn't get to Moncton but I'm sure it was great. I mean like it's um, I thought it was a, a really well put together tournament. Was it publicized, maybe advertised enough, you think? I don't know. I mean, like, that gets into stuff that I don't actually know the information so much on, so it's, I'd only be speculating. I mean, certain venue cities tended to draw better than others. Um, it's a little unfortunate Toronto wasn't involved. I understand why. Uh, it's a little unfortunate there was the artificial turf. I understand why. 
uh, I think when people remember this World Cup and think of Canada, they're going to have positive thoughts. That's great. Thank you so much. Guys. Cool. Thanks very much, Brett. So Grant Wall there, we've wanted to have him on the show for a while, so it was great to have a chance to catch up with him and, and just chew the fat about the Women's World Cup. But that's the, the tournament over now, and as we've titled this podcast, the end is just the beginning. Because it might be the end of the Women's World Cup, and it might be the end of the FIFA Under-20 Men's World Cup, and it might be the end of Copa America. But it's just the beginning of a fantastic summer of football and a fantastic few months of football that's going to be coming up here in North America. We've got the MLS season coming down the stretch, just over the halfway mark of the season now. Whitecaps doing fantastically well. We'll be back to our usual Whitecaps podcast after this episode, so watch out for them coming up soon. And on Tuesday this week, the Gold Cup kicked off. America kicked off their tournament with a narrow 2-1 win over Honduras. And Canada kicked off their tournament on Wednesday with a... I'm not sure I can really find the right adjective to describe that game, but with a 0-0 draw against El Salvador and a highlight reel miss from Kyle Larn. Not the kind of miss that you really want to be remembered for. And I'm sure if he had scored the winner, that would have taken a little bit of the pain out of that. But it was a horror miss. It was really, really bad. And I mean, we've all seen Kyle Lahren putting the goals in for Canada, putting the goals in for Orlando City and at college level. It's just not like him to miss an opportunity like that. Hopefully it's not going to cost Canada going forward and they can still advance from the group and still claim a space at Copa America next year. But to end this podcast, we thought we were just going to change the mood a little bit, move away from the women's game and speak to Daniel Squizato, well-known face in the Canadian soccer scene and as massive a Canadian national team supporter as you could possibly find. It was good to know that when we spoke to him on Monday, that he was still he was still pretty sane after America winning the, the Women's World Cup on Sunday and having to actually be in the stadium to watch Abby Wambach and Sydney LaRue lift that trophy. Didn't probably help that we met at Jackpool Plaza to, to do Jonathan Tannenwald's podcast, so check at the goalkeeper on Twitter for a link to that. And, of course, the American team were going to be there, and it was packed with American fans. So, not his ideal setting, I would say, to to do a little interview. Now, we've wanted to have Squiz back on the show for ages as well, and we've just never had the opportunity. So, we thought we'd have a chat with him just about this upcoming Gold Cup, Canada's chances, and just who he thinks might be competing in the final this year. So, without any further ado, here's Daniel Squizato. So we're joined now by Daniel Squizato and we're going to do a, a little bit of a Gold Cup preview. 
So Canada kick off their, their Gold Cup campaign in Carson, home of LA Galaxy, against El Salvador. This podcast may or may not be out by the time you hear this, but we're just going to set up the whole tournament. First thing to really ask you, Squiz, how are you expecting Canada to do this time around? Well, unfortunately, I sometimes find it difficult to separate my dispassionate analysis brain from my overly passionate Canadian supporter brain. Uh, and so looking at this tournament, the, the big question marks are going to be for Canada. How do they do without Milan Borion, number one goalkeeper? How do they do without Atiba Hutchinson, number one midfielder, probably number one player overall? And any team would be in a bit of a hole uh, trying to recover from two absences like that. With Canada especially, depth has never exactly been something that Canada has in spades. So it's it, it's going to require uh, some young players in the case of the midfield and some veteran players in the case of uh, the goalkeeping position to, to, to step up and, and make themselves known. But um, in the case of the Gold Cup, the number of surprises that we've seen over the years and and just the way that these short tournaments are, are structured um, if if you can have the team come together at the right time uh, buy into a system and and go out and execute that system then then the team can have success and if there's one thing that we've seen under Benito Floro uh, in the last two years is that every player on that team that I've had the chance to speak to, whether it's a veteran uh, or a newcomer, they all buy into what Benito Floro is, is selling. So the, the players that are coming to the Gold Cup uh, are players that have had time to grow in his system and grow together. Uh, and so even, even with those player absences, I think that we could see the Canadian team step up and, and get a decent result in this tournament. Now, I mean, you talk about depth, and it has been a big issue in the past, but the, the amount of young talent coming through just now is, is very exciting. Last time around, goals were really hard to come by. I was down for, for the game in Seattle, and it's just just didn't know where that goal was going to come from. This time, you've got Kyle Laren, you've got Tisho Akindeli. I know Akindeli's kind of still a little bit unproven as to exactly how he's going to be at that level, but Kyle Laren seems to be doing the business. I know it's not meaningful game so far, but it looks really, really positive now with him in the lineup. Yeah, it's kind of a great uh, bit of circumstance here that Canada does have these two young attack-minded players coming into the mix right at the same time that uh, Dwayne Di Rosario has has retired from the team. I mean, let's remember, he was scoring goals for Canada as recently as this January. Uh, and so to have Laren, who's 20, and Akindele, who's 23, stepping up into those roles at this time, uh, it's it, it, it's great because you've also got a level of familiarity with those players and with some of the young players you mentioned uh, that are going to be stepping into those midfield roles. Guys like Jonathan Osorio and Russell Tybert and Maxime Tissot. They're not teammates, but they play in the same league, they play in the same environments, they play as, as opponents during the course of the year. And so just any, any additional bit of familiarity that can make players like Laren and Akindele feel more at ease and more at home in the system. I mean, both of them stepped up. Uh, Laren has scored in his last three games for Canada. Akindele scored in the game against Dominica, which was only his second game for Canada. And, uh, and, and encouraging as well is to see the way that they linked up uh, with Tosaint Ricketts, who gets a lot of flack from Canadian fans. And... Uh, to be as diplomatic as possible. He, at times, has struggled to be as clinical as he perhaps needed to be for the Canadian team. Uh, he still, for what it's worth, has as many goals for Canada as Paul Pescasolito or Thomas Rudzinski do. People forget that. Um, but um, 
but to see the way that he connected uh, with Tesho, particularly uh, in that game against Dominica, uh, it might just be a one game, might just be a one-off, and of course Dominica is hardly the most challenging opponent in the world, but to actually see players connecting and creating dangerous scoring opportunities for Canada and developing some momentum and developing some camaraderie, uh, it, it definitely bodes well for this tournament. Again, whether they can pull it together in meaningful games at the Gold Cup remains to be seen, but the uh, overly passionate Canadian supporter side of my brain is, is, is getting a little bit hopeful for what's to come. So, I mean, looking at, at the group, the, the first stage is to try and get out of that group, which, which they failed at two years ago. What, who, who do you think, or what do you think is going to be the toughest games in that group? And looking at the, the way that the bracket works out, how do you see Canada then maybe advancing in the rest of the tournament? Well, in a preview I wrote uh, for MLSsoccer.com, I did go ahead and predict that Canada would grab second place in this group. I got quite a bit of flack for that, some of it totally justified from people. Um, I, I think that every game in this group is going to present uh, its own challenge for Canada. You've got the opener against El Salvador. You can expect a good contingent of Salvadoran fans uh, in Carson, California. It's the Gold Cup opener. There's all that pressure. Uh, Canada doesn't necessarily uh, historically perform well under pressure, so you've got that. You've got the second game of the group against Jamaica, a team that Canada did beat in September. You know, they're on a bit of a, a losing slide. They lost three straight at Copa America. But, but, but they have Darren Matic, so I mean, that's a good plus for Canada. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna count five five difference makers for for Jamaica, I'd count Darren Maddox, Darren Maddox, Darren Maddox, Darren Maddox, Darren Maddox. Um, but you're playing in the heat of Houston, uh, which is never never easy for for any players at any time. Uh, but for them to step up on two days rest and play against a team that you know many players are more accustomed to the heat, uh, playing in Jamaica as as we would be playing in Canada. Uh, and then July 14th, people will say that Canada should have the home field advantage playing at BMO Field against Costa Rica, but yeah. Costa Rica's the top team in the region, you know, they're a top 15 team in the world at the moment, and, uh, you know, the idea of Canada having overwhelming crowd support when playing on Canadian soil, again, historically, not, not necessarily something that happens, so I really am hoping, uh, what I'm hoping for above all from that game, uh, the doubleheader at BMO Field, is you've got El Salvador v Jamaica as the first part of the doubleheader. I would hope, I'll say hope, not expect, I would hope that the people who live in Canada, who maybe are of Salvadoran or Jamaican background, coming out to that first game to support those teams, I would hope that they would stick around and then also lend their support to the Canadian team, the team representing the nation in which they've chosen to live. That would be my hope, again, my hope, not my expectation. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, so, so you look at a group like this, this is a group that Canada could get two wins out of, or it's a group that they could go home with uh, w without a result at all. So that's, that's the kind of thin line that you're always walking on in the Gold Cup, and that's, that's kind of what makes it an exciting tournament to watch. And just before we wrap up, What's your tip to win it, and how, how do you think the final's going to be? Who do you think is going to be in there? Uh, well, picking the presumed finalists of the Gold Cup is about as difficult <laughs> as trying to decide whether or not the sun is going to rise tomorrow. So I don't know about I, here. I, well, yeah, actually, we're under cover of significant wildfire smoke here in Vancouver. But, uh, you know, my prediction would be it's almost as though the tournament is meant to end this way, would be the U.S. and Mexico. People will say Costa Rica has emerged as a favorite. 
uh, and they definitely could make themselves known. Uh, but they're, you know, they're, they've got some injuries. They're missing a lot of players from from their World Cup squad. And the U.S. and Mexico are going to have that home field advantage as well, which always uh, ha has benefited them quite well historically. So. That's my pick, of course, if we end up with, you know, Costa Rica against Honduras or something, I may have to totally, you know, reevaluate my following of soccer entirely. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, Daniel. And just before you go, let everyone know where they can find you online. Well, if you don't already follow me on Twitter, then you're one of the lucky ones. Uh, don't start doing that now. But if you do, <laughs> if, if, August, yeah. Yeah, if, uh, if, if, if you do enjoy a completely self-flagellating Canadian soccer fan, you can find me on Twitter, at Daniel Squizzato. You can also find me at MLSsoccer.com. And I do ever so sporadically post on Canadian soccer news. I will get around to that sooner or later, I promise. That's great. Thank you for your time, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Michael. In a time when hats were hats, I had no Canadian flag. Just a sign of David Roger, too scared to purchase larger. When I walked through the Clyde Valley, and the shadow of fiery chat, I wore a funeral weaver wrapped in the Canadian flag. Daniel Squiz out of there, and it's always great fun to, to talk to Squiz. So passionate about the game in Canada. If there was more people cared about the game in this country like he does, then I think the game would be in a far better state. So how Canada will do for the rest of this Gold Cup will remain to be seen. Hopefully they will improve on that nil-nil with El Salvador. But that is it for this episode of the podcast. We'll be back soon with our bread and butter, a Whitecaps podcast. So until then, don't forget to check out all our stuff on AFTN. Get there via AFTN.ca. My name is Michael McCall. I'm also the Whitecaps beat reporter for MLSsoccer.com, so read all my stuff on there as well. So until next time, as always, thanks for listening, take care, and mon the Caps! Going to your first match is an experience you never forget. The atmosphere of what's going on around the pitch looks beautiful and you always look and go, wow, I'd love to play here one day. If you get the bug, it's going to stay with you for life.